Now, why? Why is love kind? Well, because God himself is kind. God is described as having loving kindness. We know that God, for example, gives rain and sunshine upon the righteous and the unrighteous alike. God shows his goodness, his kindness to people who are not very kind to God. You and I, we have neighbors who they swear, uh, they take God's name in vain. Uh, they they blaspheme. Um, they aren't grateful. They they never give thanks to God for the, the food, the daily bread on their table. And yet, God continues to be kind to them every day, giving them families, giving them vocations, giving them sustenance, giving them a roof over their home. And Jesus says that so too the Christian is to express, albeit imperfectly, that same kindness towards unregenerate people. God's kindness is seen even not only to men who are unkind to him, uh, but even we are told to animals. In, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, very interesting verse, where God says to Jonah, you remember Jonah is very unhappy that God has not poured out fire and brimstone upon Nineveh. And he said, I knew it, I knew it. I was going to preach and you'd be gracious and they would repent and, and they would be saved and you wouldn't destroy my enemies. And he's kind of bitter uh, about this. And, and God speaks to Jonah. He says, Jonah, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left? But then it's interesting. He says, as well as many animals. It kind of gives us just a little extra, doesn't it? That God is even concerned about the animals in the city of Nineveh. He doesn't want to see them destroyed. Psalm 136, the common refrain that is repeated in the beeline of the psalm as the, you sing those couplets uh, through the psalm, the, the beeline is always, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Interesting, when Adam and Eve had sinned, one of the first acts of God towards Adam and Eve in their sin was what? It was an act of kindness. They were naked and ashamed. And God, in a sense, said, let me clothe you. We'll deal with your spiritual problem in a minute. But first, let's take care of your material problem. And so he didn't start with the gospel, interestingly enough, did he? He started by meeting a basic human need. Probably tells us something, too, about the way maybe we should think about evangelism sometimes in desperate situations. Show the kindness and then make room there for the gospel in that kindness. The Heavenly Father, he is kind to us, too. He clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Did you know, boys and girls, that your faith in Jesus Christ has uh, given you a, a clothing of sorts? Now, it's not a, a clothing that we can see. It's not like this shirt or tie, but it, it's a clothing from God. God covers us in, in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he sees you wearing that righteousness. Jesus uh, imputes his merit 
uh, to you. And it's one of the greatest kindnesses of God given to man. You know, if, if Jesus were to atone for our sin and wash everything away that was done in the past, in, in a sense, it'd still be incomplete. It'd be like taking a bath, but you're still naked. You're, you're not, still not fit for public. At least you're clean, that's good, but you need something more. And so God gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, says, wear this. He compares it in a parable to a wedding garment, you remember. And uh, you remember how there was a man who wasn't wearing the wedding garment, and he was easy to spot. And the, and the man of the banquet said, how did you get in here? You know, he didn't have the clothing that he needed, the, the free clothing that is available. And you can have that clothing even tonight if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We also see the kindness of God in God's sovereign providence. He's working all things together for good and for the good of all who love him. Everything that happens in Romans 8, 28 and 30 tells us that that plan leads ultimately to glorification and that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from God's kindness. Jesus the Son, along with the Father, is kind. Jesus became incarnate. The Son of Man came into this world. Why did he come? Jesus tells us he did not come to condemn. He came to be kind. He came to save. His mission was one of kindness. His mission was one of salvation and reconciliation. Listen to Titus chapter 3 with me in verse 4. Paul says here, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Spirit. He did all of that out of what? Out of the kindness of his own being, his love for mankind. Jesus showed his kindness in healing the multitudes some of whom were in such poor condition, they had been in that condition, we are told in the Gospels, for even many decades. You can think, for example, Jesus' kindness to the lame man. You remember the lame man? And the Bible says that this man was in his 40s. He had been in that condition for a long time. We know of a woman. She was uh, bent over. We don't know exactly what the problem was, but it was so bad that she couldn't stand up straight. And the Bible says she had been in this condition for years. And Jesus was kind to Jairus' daughter, raising her from the dead, and, and kindness shown to her parents, obviously. He fed the multitudes. You remember how the disciples just wanted to send the, send the multitudes away, Lord. The, the, the day is getting long here. And, and send them away. And Jesus says, no, they, they're going to faint. They've been following us all this time. They need something to eat. Give them some strength before they go home. We see uh, something of the Lord's kindness when the disciples weren't really all that kind. He had compassion on the lame man who was always lying by the water of Bethsaida, but he could never get in on time when the waters were stirred up. And Jesus had compassion for him, showed him a kindness 
in healing him. Jesus was so kind, he, he would heal men and women on the Sabbath day, even though he knew that doing so would provoke the legalistic wrath of the Pharisees. He was willing to do that. The Pharisees had corrupted their, the view of the Sabbath so as to not permit kindness and healing. And Jesus uh, would not go along with that. Instead, healed the multitudes on the Sabbath day. Jesus showed kindness in preaching to the multitudes. Even beyond the body, he ministered to the soul, the word of God. He, he demonstrated the kindness of his father by willingly going to the cross, going and submitting to the father's will in Gethsemane. Jesus is, as we have seen in previous weeks, showing his kindness in delaying his return. Uh, we are told that his delay means that there is more opportunity for friends and family to come to Christ, lest they be lost for eternity. And Jesus delays. The Father is willing for the sake of salvation for yet another sinner to wait. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is kind. We are told that he illuminates our understanding of the Bible he becomes our teacher. He becomes our tutor. You ever struggled in a subject, boys and girls? Maybe you find math hard. Maybe you find it easy. Maybe, maybe learning a foreign language is hard for you. And you need help. Well, God knows that you, know, you and I need help. That it's not always easy to understand the Bible. And so he sends a tutor. He gets us a tutor to come and help us and teach us and instruct us so we don't fail as class. And uh, so that we can know what's in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit is kind to do that. Think about the kindness of the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. In your corruption, the Spirit is willing to abide. You're not a, a completely sanctified creature yet. You're not glorified yet. And yet the Spirit is willing. Even as Jesus showed his humiliation by coming down to be among sinners, the Spirit kindly comes into your life. The Spirit kindly woos people who are not in Christ by the effectual calling of the Spirit. The Spirit uh, draws men to Christ. He persuades people to come to Christ. Uh, he, he demonstrates something of the power of the ages to come in the midst of teaching and preaching. The Spirit shows the kindness of God in that the Spirit gives gifts generously to the church. Every Christian in the body of Christ has been given gifts. Even as you remember Abraham's servant in the Bible. And what did Abraham's servant do when he was seeking a wife uh, for Isaac? And he saw Rebekah. He gave her gifts. You remember? Remember the rings and the bracelets that he put upon her? Well, the Holy Spirit similarly gives gifts to the bride-to-be, gives gifts, and saying, look, these gifts come from the bridegroom, and there's a lot more where this came from. And we see this, of course, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is given in such abundance out of the kindness of God. Now, the divine kindness of God is a part of God's love. Um, and this is the love that is enjoined upon us. God is holy. And the Bible says you are to be holy as he is holy. 
As we have beheld the kindness of God, the love of God in Jesus Christ, now we, as his ambassadors, show the love of God to others. God's kindness is not restricted only to his own people. And therefore, our kindness cannot be restricted only to Christians. Our kindness and our love must extend to people who are ungrateful to God, people who are ignorant of God, and even the wicked are to receive our love and kindness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, if you hang out only with the Christians and greet them, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? And so even as Jesus' kindness led to the cross, our love for sinners should lead us to take up our cross and follow after Jesus. That is, we live a life of of denial uh, for the sake of others. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and following. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That doesn't mean emptying himself of his deity. Emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now we know also that love, according to Paul um, in Corinthians, is not envious. Uh, The NAS translates it jealous, but that might not be as quite as good a translation as envy. The NIV, the ESV, and New King James all use envy. Um, the Bible says, and the reason for that, the Bible does speak sometimes of jealousy favorably. God is jealous with his love for his people. But envy uh, is opposite of Christian love. Jonathan Edwards, who we've referred to the last couple weeks in his book, Charity and Its Fruits, says that Christian love is opposite of an envious spirit. Edwards says envy is defined the following way. He says, a spirit of dissatisfaction with and opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others as compared with our own. A spirit of dissatisfaction with and opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others as compared with our own. The envious person dislikes the comparative superiority of the state of honor, prosperity, happiness that another may enjoy over that which he possesses. They have honor and enjoyment that we may not have. Uh, Men love to be uppermost, and so men also can be envious when another seems equal to himself. We can think of Genesis chapter 37 uh, verse 11 and following where we're told that Joseph's brothers, you remember Joseph? And the multicolored tunic, Joseph's brothers, we are told, had a spirit of envy towards their brother. Uh, Joshua kind of had a, an envy uh, for Moses' sake, not for his own, but he didn't like it when the Spirit of God was poured out on uh, 
Eldad and Medad. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, he, he didn't like that the spirit that had animated the ministry of Moses now was being given to these guys who wouldn't even show up to the meeting. And Moses said, you know, I wish the spirit were poured out on this whole place. Um, you remember the political officials, Daniel chapter 6, the political officials who were envious of Daniel. And so they set a trap to catch him. Uh, and the only one that they could think of uh, because of the character of Daniel was that they could only get him as it related to Daniel's God in prayer. And so um, they were going to get him thrown into the lion's den. Den, Daniel chapter 6, verse 3 and 4 then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. So God is blessing Daniel. Daniel is prospering in his administration in the empire of Babylon. Uh, the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom, it is said here in Daniel 6. So what? Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But, of course, they could not find anything. There was no corruption uh, within him in that regard. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were envious of Jesus. Jesus drew in huge crowds. Jesus performed miracles. Jesus was hailed publicly as the son of David uh, by the children on the edge of the road. And this, this was contrary to the Pharisees. They were dissatisfied that Jesus should be given this messianic title. Again, uh, Jonathan Edwards, on studying this subject, speaking of envy manifested, Edwards says, an uneasiness and dissatisfaction with the prosperity of others. Edwards goes on, he says, instead of rejoicing in the prosperity of others, and yet we are supposed to rejoice in the good of others, rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. But instead of rejoicing in the prosperity of others, the envious man will be troubled with it. It will be grievous to his spirit to see them rise so high and to come to such honors and advancement. Esther chapter 5 verse 13, we are told of Haman who had riches, multitude of children, and kingly promotions. And yet, quote, yet all of this did not satisfy me, says Haman. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, because Mordecai would not stand nor tremble before him. Edwards notes that the envious person hates not only the prosperity of another, but he also hates the person himself. Going back to the example of Joseph and his brothers, it's not just that they hated that Joseph had this prosperity of his father's love demonstrated in the multicolored tunic. But it says that Joseph's brothers could not say anything good to their brother because his father loved him. And Joseph had dreams that made the brothers inferior to Joseph. And so they hated Joseph, the person, not just the prosperity that was envisioned. Again, Jonathan Edwards the envious person acts as if the prosperity of another was some kind of injury against themselves. This hatred led to acts of cruelty and wickedness in the case of Joseph and his brothers. Now, every Christian will have to struggle with envy and all kinds of corruptions in our heart. 
But we, by God's grace, can't oppose those corruptions. The Spirit abhors the spirit of envy within ourselves and wants to mortify it. The Christian will see envy as antithetical to the love and the grace that has been demonstrated to him by God and by Jesus Christ and will desire to mortify all envious feelings and to suppress all expressions of envy, whether in speech or in conduct. The Christian positively must seek contentment in his own station in life. Wherever God has us, we seek to be content as long as we are faithful in the position that God has placed us. So singles, my fellow singles, we got to be content, okay? It's not a bad thing to aspire to marriage. Marriage is honorable. It's a good thing. But we also have to be content in our station. Don't have a boyfriend. Don't have a girlfriend like you want. Well, you got to be content. Maybe God wants to work on some things in you first. Uh, Don't be envious of those who do enter into the state of marriage. Rejoice with them. Romans 13, verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife, and now listen, and not in jealousy, because jealousy is contrary to love. 1 Corinthians 3, 3, For you are still fleshly, says Paul to the church at Corinth. Now, why does he say they're still fleshly? He says, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, the apostle Paul says, for I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may not find you to be not what I wish. I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, and then also uh, jumping to verse 21, again, the Apostle Paul. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. You see, we tend to think of drunkenness, carousing, idolatry, immorality, sensuality. Those are the sins, right? That's the fleshly life. That's the life of an unregenerate. But no, Paul's saying also outbursts of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, jealousy. That too needs to be dealt with. Those are not the excusable sins. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Oh, by the way, I didn't finish that verse. Paul goes on, he says, Just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not just the adulterers and the homosexuals who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It's those who practice envy, jealousy, outbursts of anger, dissension and disputes are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4. If anyone advocates a different doctrine... Paul says he is conceited and understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, 
strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. How many theological debates break out, especially on the internet, where it really comes down to the issue of envy, just wanting to be the theological alpha male, you know, on the internet. Titus 3.3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So this, is, this is the way we used to live before we knew Jesus Christ. James chapter 3, verse 14, and also verse 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. For where jealousy and selfish, selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. 1 Peter chapter 2, which we saw a few months ago, verse 1 and 2, Therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. John MacArthur says that there are two forms of envy. Um, one is to desire what another has. Uh, if they are praised, we want that praise, MacArthur says. If they have a possession, we want that possession. The other form, MacArthur says, is to wish that another did not have what they have. MacArthur says, quote, it is jealousy on the deepest, most corrupt and destructive level, unquote, that you, you wish that others didn't have what they have. First Kings chapter 3, I think we see this. You remember, it's the story of the two harlots, and uh, they both have babies, and a mother falls asleep and accidentally suffocates her baby. She realizes her baby is dead, and she switches babies with the living baby. She takes the living baby. She gives the other woman her dead baby. And they wake up in the morning and the mother of now who possesses the dead baby realizes this is not my child. She has my child. And then this dispute goes before Solomon. And, and Solomon says, well, here's the solution. Get a sword and cut the child in half. And the real mother said, no, let the baby be hers. But what? The, the envious woman says what? No, kill the child. Uh, that kind of, of uh, wickedness, jealousy, and envy uh, is what MacArthur's talking about when he calls it the most corrupt and destructive. The Greek word uh, zeloi, um, zelu being the root, to be jealous. We get English, the English word zealous from it. It is to have an intense desire. Now, sometimes, as I said at the beginning, sometimes the Bible will speak affirmatively of jealousy, God's jealous love for his people, as he loves his people so deeply, he can't abide by them going off with another God. Now, that's something that should be viewed favorably, boys and girls. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, that uh, Paul urges them to earnestly desire the greater gifts. He was using that in a, in a positive sense. But um, it also can be used in a word that is not to be affirmed. Christian love is the opposite of the envious spirit. Again, Edwards, uh, a spirit of dissatisfaction and opposition to the prosperity and happiness 
of others compared with our own. We see this in the Bible where Cain murders Abel. Why? Because God accepted Abel's sacrifice. God was displeased with Cain's sacrifice. And Cain was full of envy that his brother's should, sacrifice should be favored above his own. Uh, Uh, we see it with Saul. King Saul became envious when the women sang that Saul has killed his thousands and David is tens of thousands. And they didn't like, Saul didn't like that. I'm king and they're only praising me with killing thousands. And they're singing that David's killed ten thousands. They, they've elevated David and not me. Rachel became envious of Leah. Leah was having several babies, and she was having none. God had closed her womb, and she became envious uh, of Leah. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, we're told that there were ministers who were preaching the gospel out of envy. They, they were trying to bring further harm to the apostle Paul, who was imprisoned. Maybe the, 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 the more they went out and spread the gospel and became, maybe, we don't know, maybe obnoxious to the civil magistrates, the, the worse it would be for Paul. But Paul said, hey, I'm glad that the gospel is being preached. Seeing envy, even in places like the seminary, can be distressing. Um, we see where... Envy might have been possibly in the mix when the older brother learns that his father has accepted the younger prodigal brother back home. Edwards, again, instead of rejoicing in the prosperity of others, the envious man will be troubled with it. It will be grievous to his spirit to see them come to such honors. I need to keep moving here. <clears throat> Let me move on. The Apostle Paul said that love also can be defined by humility. Uh, we are told love does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly. The New King James says love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely. The NIV says it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude. The ESV says love does not boast, it is not arrogant or rude. And, and so love is humble. If we are enjoined by Peter to love, then we must accompany that love with humility. Boasting and bragging are sins of the mouth. There's different ways to be arrogant. Boasting and bragging are sins of the mouth. But you can also have arrogance. The latter sin speaks to our disposition in general, which may include the mouth, but doesn't have to. So, for example, in Proverbs chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, uh, we are told, Do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring forth. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth. 
a stranger and not your own lips. Uh, we, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, and so we have to show ourselves to be humble by submitting to the providence of God. And so uh, we don't say, well, you know, next year we're going to go to this city and that city and we're going to make a lot of money and, it, and it, it'll all be great. We don't know. You notice our bulletin has that little phrase, all announcements about the future here. <laughs> Assume, Lord willing, quote unquote. Uh, we're not boasting about tomorrow. Uh, we're not guaranteed. We don't know. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, we read this. The king reflected and said, is this, this is Nebuchadnezzar, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence. Notice there the double reference to self. I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. And God had to humble him. In 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 11, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, threatened and boasted in a letter to Ahab, the king of Israel. And Ahab, who is a bad guy, but occasionally gets a thing right, uh, Ahab replies, tell him, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. That is, don't talk so big before the football game. Before you've put on your helmet and pads <laughs> and end up talking like you're just now taking them off after a big victory. Go into the game with a sense of humility. This team has come to play and they may beat you. Second Chronicles chapter 25, verse 17 and following, Amaziah of Judah was itching to go to civil war with Joash, the king of Israel. And Joash warned Amaziah about his pride his arrogance. And he said, you've become proud. Behold, you have defeated Edom. And your heart has become proud in boasting. And he says, now stay at home. For why should you provoke trouble so that you, even you, will fall and Judah with you? He's saying you, you, you're becoming arrogant based on your past victories. And now you're trying to provoke trouble with us. James chapter 3, verse 5 says the tongue is a little instrument, yet it boasts of great things. In Revelation and also in the book of Daniel both, we see a little horn that comes up and makes great boasts and utters blasphemies. Now, why is boasting contrary to love? Boasting denies the reality of God's grace. Nebuchadnezzar says, look what I've done. It fails to appreciate God's sovereign and gracious rule over the affairs of even kings and nations. Nebuchadnezzar fails to understand that it is God who is sovereign and not men. Men are what they are. There's that great line in Braveheart. God makes men what they are. Boasting denies the reality of God's sovereignty over the future. Proverbs 27 again said, don't boast about tomorrow. Why? We're not in control of tomorrow. How many of you have been in a car accident where you had to go to the hospital, you had to go to the emergency room, and you thought, I'd never thought I would be here when I woke up this morning. I remember many years ago, I woke up as I always did, at home, in my bed, and this was in my former house, and many of you may remember I had a kitchen fire, a grease fire, and the fire department had to 
come and and help. And it wasn't a, a huge fire in that it burned down the house or anything, but it it sent smoke and soot everywhere. And and at the end of the day, I'm I'm lying in the bed of the guest room of the Petrus house, and I'm thinking, I didn't think I was going to be here at the end of the day when I woke up this morning. Um, and so the Bible says we should not boast. Now, I did return the favor when that guy was shooting uh, near the Petrus's subdivision, and Eric needed a place to stay that night because they wouldn't let Eric go home, and so I gave him my guest bedroom. So uh, the favor has been, been returned there. But uh, we don't boast. You know, we, the day didn't end as we expected it to. And so boasting is contrary to Christian love. Uh, it's because also it not only denies God's sovereignty and God's grace, but it's contrary to the nature and attitude of Christ. Christ did not boast. He didn't boast that he was king. He didn't say, listen to me, I'm the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Philippians chapter 2, 5 says, no, have this attitude in yourselves which was in Christ Jesus, that although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't make it his prerogative, but he took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. Boasting is contrary to Christian love because it's also idolatrous. It, what boasting does is it tends to exalt secondary causes rather than God himself. And God, we are told, will not share his glory with another. So in Psalm 20, verse 7, the psalmist says, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. What are they doing, boasting in horses and chariots? Well, they're boasting in secondary causes. Sometimes we've seen this. I remember back many years ago um, when I, I've kept a journal on and off my whole life, much of my adult life, maybe I should say. And I remember being upset one night at the State of a Union in which the president, the then president, spoke uh, about our military might and asserted such confidence in it um, to the point that I even in my journal entry felt that the rhetoric was idolatrous. In it. And what my next entry, which was only a couple days later, was having to write that the uh, spaceship Columbia had just exploded. And I, I, I'm not saying that it exploded because of the president's boasting, but I thought here's a, a clear example, though, of why we don't boast in our technical prowess. Um, that the, the very next journal entry I had was God bringing uh, that space shuttle to an end. So we need to be careful, not rely, even on things that uh, our, our pastors, teachers, those that are elected to office, we need to rely on God. Well, it's 7 o'clock. I, I was going to start another aspect of this, but um, it'll take too much time. We'll stop here.